Well, good morning, ladies. I know I have the faithful Bereans that are willing to get here early. Um, it just, it makes me smile. I, one of my favorite songs is Jesus, Thank You. And so it's so precious to be able to sing that this morning. I hope you got your coffee. Um, actually, Bailey Farrell was the one that roasted our coffee for this conference, if you didn't know. Um, so that is one reason to try it. Reason number two, um, I'm going to attempt something I have never done before. And I would like to say you're, you're going to be blessed. You may be my guinea pigs. So just let me know at the end if I should tank this one or if I should keep it. We are going to tackle 17 verses this morning. Last night we did two. So you may be here a long time, but I'm going to try to crank through this one. I just, I couldn't split it. The context of this passage is so rich, and then the progression of this text of what does it mean for us to really be godly um, just hit my heart hard. So we are going to tackle 17 verses, and be honest with me. I won't take it personally. If I need to nix this one, just let me know, okay? All right, so last night we looked at our first indicative imperative relationship. We saw how the truth of God's mercy causes us to respond in a life of worship. And this morning, we are going to look at another example of this and again be called to respond. This time, we are going to be called to remember, recalibrate, and repent. If you would, please turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. We are going to be tackling those first 17 verses, but I'm going to start by just reading the first four and see if we can't make this manageable for us as we work through. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let me pray for our time. Lord, we thank you, um, just even as that song said, that once we were your enemies and now we are seated at your table if we are your, truly your children. Lord, you have rescued us. Um, you have transferred us to the kingdom of your son, and you have substituted your righteousness for our sinfulness. We are so grateful that you have done all the work, and Lord, we are the recipients of incredible blessing. I pray this morning as we wrestle through these 17 verses that you will endear our hearts all the more to you. And Lord, from that, you will challenge us to respond, to live godly for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The story of the ugly duckling. Now, many of you are probably familiar with this 1872 fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. But if you're not, let me give you a quick summary. This story is about her mother duck who is sitting on her nest waiting for her little ducklings to hatch, but one egg is larger than the rest of them. Soon she has a perfect little group of hatchlings and one ugly duck. He is larger and more gray than the rest. After a few days, she takes her ducklings to the farm where the ugly duck gets picked on by every animal in the farm. 
Eventually, the ugly duck's own siblings and even his own mom begins to ostracize him. And so he leaves the farm looking for a new family and a new home. This leads to trial after trial, and eventually the ugly duck is alone and desiring to die. After a long winter by himself, spring awakens and he beholds a group of very large birds flying toward him. He bows his head, he prepares to be killed because he is so ugly, and when he looks down into the water, he sees his reflection, and it reveals that he is no longer ugly and no longer gray but a beautiful, white, long, curvy neck bird. He is a swan. And just like the birds approaching him, he is the most beautiful of them all. The story ends with the ugly duck, also known as the swan, saying, I never dreamed of such happiness as this while I was an ugly duckling. In this story, we see a case of mistaken identity. A swan mistook himself for a duck, a very ugly duck. He was ridiculed and ostracized because he did not look like the other ducks. This led to him becoming sorrowful, miserable, and lonely. But once he learned his true identity, it changed the whole outlook, and he no longer viewed himself as an ugly duck, but a very happy swan. Identity. Understanding one identity changes everything. What is identity? Identity is the fact of being who or what one is, and it is a fact. It's who you are. In our passage this morning, we are going to see how understanding one's identity, who one is in Christ, will change how one thinks and how one lives. This passage helps us to remember, recalibrate, and repent. We are going to unpack three implications of understanding your new life in Christ. We are going to look at how you need to consider your new identity, live with a new perspective, and understand our new battle. The first implication, again, is to consider your new identity. And just like last night, you might be asking, why do we need to consider our new identity? Why do we need to think and ponder about our new life in Christ? And again, we are a forgetful people. We forget who the greatness of Christ, who he is and what he's done. We forget our need for him. And our flesh begins to rear its head once again. We are bombarded by sin and temptation and worldly philosophies. So when we consider our identity, and we actually don't have confidence in ourselves, we have confidence in Christ. And this makes all the difference in us living for him and living a godly life. The Colossian believers, they were tempted in the very same way we are. They were forgetting who they were in Christ. And they were being tempted to forget his greatness if you read through the first two chapters of Colossians, one will see very quickly that Christ, who he is, and what he has done is front and center in that book. This church was being infiltrated by some false ideas and doctrines, that one needed to add something in order to be saved, that one needed to do something in order to be truly spiritual. And these Colossian believers, they were beginning to be contaminated in their understanding 
of the gospel and salvation. They were reverting back to their old way of thinking. Paul unpacks for us how Christ is sufficient, how no one and nothing else compares to him, how he is supreme. There's, this is where we find ourselves in chapter 3. Paul is challenging these Colossian believers to consider their identity in Christ, what he has done on their behalf. And you'll notice our passage, just like last night, starts with a therefore. The why, the truth behind what compels us to then follow the instructions that we're going to see in chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ. In chapters 2, um, what, 11 through 14, Paul reiterates this idea, and this is the greatest place where he expands on it. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, that God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the, or the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But here in chapter 2, 11 through 14, he builds on this idea of what does it really mean that we are raised with Christ. And it says, in him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, that's Christ, from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. And then what did he do with that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This being raised with Christ, it means that our record of debt, all of our sin has been forgiven on the cross. The day that Jesus substituted his righteousness for our sinfulness. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ. He raised us with him when Christ conquered sin and death. It's interesting because right after Jesus affirmed, or right after um, Paul affirms here in Colossians that we have been raised, if you go on in chapter 2, he gives a warning. And he says, do not let anyone pass judgment on you for acting religious like these other people that are trying to earn this right standing with God, and he warns them. And then in verse 23, he says something very interesting right before we jump in to chapter 3. He describes these religious acts as having an appearance of godliness, an appearance of wisdom, and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in what? They are in no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you had these false teachers saying you needed to add these things to be saved, but what they were attempting to do had no effect on them to live a godly life. It couldn't. It wasn't followed or previously had that new life in Christ, that being raised with him. And so these Colossian believers, they were forgetting their identity in Christ, what it meant that they were raised with him, that Christ is enough. Nothing else needs to be added for our salvation, and apart from Christ, no religious acts or no religious disciplines can thwart the flesh. Our identity needs to be made new. We need to become new creations in Christ. 
be raised with him, and only then can we fight the flesh. Just like these Colossian believers, we forget that at times. We forget who we are in Christ, that there is nothing we can do to find favor in the sight of the Lord, that Christ has accomplished all of that for our salvation. But instead, what we do is we try to tack on these works or self-made regulations to try to appear to be godly. What we think, we think that by doing some of these religious acts, things like reading our Bible, going to church, serving in a ministry, denying ourselves certain things of this world, we think that by doing these things, it will make us more godly. Why do we do this? Why do we run to these acts? Because these acts make us feel good about ourselves, as if we have some control or some part in being righteous before God. We try to add to the gospel and salvation, forgetting that it is a free gift, that we have no room to boast. We have lost sight of our identity in these moments. It says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, the if here is not a question of uncertainty, but here is actually a statement of implication. And maybe one could say this way, since you have been raised with Christ, remember who you are in him. I like this quote by John MacArthur on our identity. He says, our identity is not a function of uniqueness. We are not precious snowflakes that elicits God's smile through our mere existence. Instead, our identity is bound up in our relationship to Christ, how he has purchased us and transformed us through his sacrifice. Christ's death did not reveal our value. Apart from him, we had none. Instead, our value is purely a function of our relationship with him as he redeemed us from our worthless state for his use in this life and the eternity of glorifying him, end quote. As Christians, our identity, all that we are, what we have received, and our future hope of glory, they are all bound up in the person of Christ. This is the reality. This is the fact of you who are a believer. However, we are tempted, just like these Colossian believers, to appear godly by what we do or to try to fight our flesh in our own strength instead of running to the one who has given us new life. And so this is where Paul goes next in our text. We are first to consider our identity, and then this will cause us to live with a new perspective. So second, we are to live with a new perspective. Let's look at those four verses again. It says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We see that being raised with Christ should cause us to live with a new perspective, a Christ-centered one. First here, he calls us to keep seeking the things above. And that verb there, keep seeking, it's present active. It means that is something we are to be continually doing, continually to strive after. And notice it says where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our aim is not a location. Our aim is a person, a person who is seated. 
who has completed all the requirements of salvation and who is sitting next to God the Father who is pleased with all that he has done. Next in our text, you'll see it says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And again, this verb is present active. This is something we are to be doing continually. We are to constantly think about and have an inner disposition to set our, our minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. What are those things of this earth that Paul is referring to? He's referring to things of fleshly indulgence, man-made philosophies, or even these religious acts that we just talked about at the end of chapter 2. And these things of earth are in contrast to something. They're in contrast to the things above. Paul is showing that where you set your mind is how you will process your life. And thus arguing that setting your mind on things above is what then determines how you will process truth and life on this earth. And it's not to be the other way around. We do not use the things of this earth to determine spiritual truth. Does the battle with the world and our minds sound familiar? Do you remember our passage from last night, right? 12, Romans 12, 2. Do you not think our flesh has a strong pull towards the things of the world? Do you not think we are tempted to think on things of this earth to determine our spiritual value or spiritual truth? We are. We're just like these Colossian believers. And that is why we have to vigilantly recalibrate our minds. We need to think on the things above. In another book of Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins, he has a chapter on ungodliness. And he defines ungodliness as this. Living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, of God's will, of God's glory, or of one's dependence on him. This goes back to our devotion we talked about last night. Godliness starts with a relationship, an attitude of devotion to the one who rescued, rescued you by his mercies. He made you a new creation in Christ. What does this practically look like, though? Can we really think about Christ all day long? What about when we are driving or making dinner or those kind of things? How can we keep our mind fixed on the things above? I once heard this analogy, and it's been really helpful for me. He said, view your mind as a computer screensaver. Whenever it has a down minute, where does your mind go to? Where does it pop to? What pops up? Is it Christ, or is it something else? Well, about nine years ago now, we learned, learned that I had Lyme disease. For two years, we lived in, un in uncertainty. We traveled from doctor to doctor and from specialist to specialist. And I learned some very special things during this time of waiting and waiting. But these things I learned brought joy and contentment as I anticipated answers. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I remember asking myself, how often am I in trouble, affliction, firmity? How often am I in need of God? All the time. And it says he is present all the time in my trouble. There were days 
when I didn't know if I wanted to keep on going. I didn't know if I wanted to keep going from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, just to hear the same words over again. We don't know why you're in pain. Your tests are all clear. Maybe this is all in your head. There were definitely dark moments in these years. But the Lord, little by little, he taught me to look to him. I began looking for God, how he was answering prayer, how he was um, opening doors, how he brought truth to my heart from other people. And I began to rejoice. God is always working. I just needed to look to see how he was at work. The simple pursuit to keep my mind attentive to how he is at work continues to be something I struggle with. I have to intentionally practice this. My mind quickly wanders to my own wisdom, my own ways, my own ideas, and that is why we are instructed here to set our mind on things above all the time, and we are to work hard at it. Verse three goes on and it explains the why. Why do we set our minds on things above? He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, Paul goes back to our identity here. My old identity has died. My new life, my new identity is now hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by, not in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And in case you were unsure at this point who you are in Christ, Paul hits us again in verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. My whole life is wrapped up in Christ. That is my new identity. He is my new perspective. He is now the focus of all I seek, what I think about, and what I anticipate. His return is my future hope. He is my life. This last year, I was part of a ladies' Bible study, and we went through the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, by Paul Tripp. And in chapter 2, the author talks about God's redemptive plan for man, and he gave this illustration when he was a kindergarten teacher. He had a mom come to him and ask if she could throw a birthday party for her daughter Susie that following Friday. Well, next Friday, all the kids funnel into the classroom, and it's elaborately decorated, and there's party favors on each desk, and then at Susie's desk, there was a pile of presents. However, at the end of a long table sat a little boy named Johnny. And he would look at his party favor, and he would look at her stack of presents, and he would cross his arms, he would stick out his lip, and he would say, humph. Well, before long, the attention of the whole room was on Johnny. And one mom gently went over to him, and she looked him in the face, and she said, Johnny, it's not your party. Do we ever act like Johnny? Do we lose perfect perspective and fail to remember that it's not our party? 
that your life is no longer your own, that it has been bought with a price, right? 1 Corinthians 6.20. I do. Far too often, I'm afraid. This has become a tagline in our house. When someone says something selfish, we're like, it's not your party. It's just not your party. So you can steal that one if you like. <laughs> but I forget this often, that I've been raised with Christ, that he is seated in heaven, that my life is hidden with him, I am no longer my own, and that I have a new identity. I become miserable like Johnny did. I become hopeless like that ugly duckling. So far, we've been encouraged to first consider our new identity, second, to live with a new perspective, and the rest of this passage demonstrates how your new identity brings about a new battle. And that's our third point. Understand your new battle. Let's read verses 5 through 11. It says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. In verse 5, Paul exhorts these believers to consider the members of their earthly body as dead. In the ESV, it says, put to death what is earthly in you. This verb here, to consider, it holds the idea of making a definitive choice, putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is where I'm going to stand. And although there will be ongoing battle in these areas of sin, the focus here is on making a decision that from this moment forth, I'm going to choose godliness. That is Paul's argument here. You are no longer defined by these sins. Consider them dead. Make a definitive choice that they will no longer characterize your life, and you will do whatever it takes to stake your claim. You have a new identity, and these sins are no longer to be part of it. This idea of putting to death these sins assumes that you want to adopt God's heart, that you want to hate them. You don't kill something you still love. Unfortunately, though, we don't always hate sin, and we don't always kill it. Sometimes we like those temporary pleasures that sin provides, the indulgences of our flesh, and that is why this verb is in the active voice. This is something we are to continually make that definitive choice and fight. Our flesh is weak, and the pulls of sin are strong, both from the world, but especially from within our own hearts. The battle often doesn't end by killing a sin once. I think of cockroaches. I loathe, I mean, I loathe cockroaches. And I never knew cockroaches were in such abundance until I moved to Florida. When I see a cockroach in my house, I don't go get a jar, scoop them up, put them outside and say, I hope you never find your way into my home again. No, I squish that thing. 
I kill it hard. I do not want it to be like Lazarus and come back from the dead, right? That is the way we are to fight our sin. We want to make sure it never enters our home again. That they are no longer stake a claim in our hearts. However, if another cockroach finds its way into my home, and I can tell you it always does, I need to have that same response. I need to kill it, and I need to kill it quickly. I cannot get lazy or casual about killing cockroaches, or they will overtake my home. Trust me. <laughs> this is the attitude that we are to have toward this list of sins in verses 5 through 11. We are to kill them. We are to continually be purging them from our lives. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, even evil desire and greed. In verse 8, he adds anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And in verse 9, he adds lying. I don't have time to unpack this whole list, but I do want to ask you some questions to help us feel the weight of this list that Paul has given us. Do you ever have impure thoughts or passions? Do you read or watch things filled with sexual immorality or impurity, things that the world practices? How about evil desires or greed? Have you ever had vengeful thoughts or retaliatory actions towards your husband, your children, friends? What about coveting after what other people have? Lusting to have the prestige or the things of this world? How are you doing with controlling your anger? Do you ever get frustrated, right? That's one of those respectable sins in Jerry Bridges' book. Or lose your temper or raise your voice to your children? Are your words apples of gold in settings of silver? Or are they a fire that destroys all in its path, right? James says, the man who does not stumble in what he says is a perfect man, James 3, 2. And I am not one that qualifies for that. What about gossip or slander? Do you like to hear those juicy morsels? Or even better, do you like to share them? How about lying? Do you ever stretch the truth or present things in a way that favors your ideas or your desires? Do you ever manipulate the truth to benefit yourself? The answer to all these things is yes. We are all struggle with every single one of these to one degree or another. And this is why we are to constantly be fighting the flesh, what is still worldly in us. And we are called to put those attitudes and actions to death because that's not who we are anymore. They are all examples of idolatry, where we are worshiping our lusts more than the one who made us to model our life after him. I want you to notice the reasons in verses 5 through 11 are why we are to fight against the flesh. Verse 5 it says these things are earthly, they're not heavenly. Verse th six, these things bring about the wrath of God and they're descriptive of the sons of disobedience, not of righteousness. Verse seven says we once walked in them while we were living in them, but now, verse eight, you must put them aside. And he explains why, verse nine and 10. You laid aside the old self and its evil practices, and you have put on the new self, 
who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And what is this new image? Verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Do you see it, ladies? Why do we fight? Why do we fight to put these earthly things to death in our life? It's because that's not who we are anymore. This is remnant of the old self, and it still wants to rear its ugly health head in our lives, but we are now able to fight. We are no longer a slave to what is earthly in us. We are slaves to righteousness. I know that you guys are going through the book of Romans, and so you just covered this verse, but Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. We are no longer to be slaves to these sins, ladies. And can I encourage you? Go through this list. What sin in this list keeps finding its way back into your home? Which sin do you not hate as you should? Are there any of these sins that are not just an occasional failure, but a predominating sin pattern in your life? Let's take anger, for example. Do any of you sin regularly in having a short fuse, aggressive or sharp words, or you have this boiling point that eventually spills out and destroys everyone in your presence? When anger is not just an occasional lapse, in battling the flesh, but a regular one, maybe even daily or multiple times daily. When sin is manifesting itself regularly in a particular area in your life, trying to kill one individual cockroach isn't going to accomplish it. Sin overflows from the heart. And there is an idol in my heart, and it needs to be bound, and it needs to be destroyed. This is when an exterminator needs to be called in. He needs to come and spray the whole house because there is an infestation. And he needs to locate the root of the issue. Where is that nest of sin in my heart? This is not always easy to do on our own, right? We struggle discerning our own hearts because we think more highly of ourselves than we should. <laughs> Can I encourage you? If you have a scenario in your life that keeps finding its way to the surface, that it's happening regularly, find an older woman to help you. Turning to your besties who are struggling with the same thing, they may have some practical advice, but you know what? They're still in it just like you. They haven't gone through it victoriously. Go find that older woman who can come and impart that wisdom and knowledge and give you the, those nuggets of truth that will strengthen your soul to be victorious like she has. That is the gift of older women in the church. That is that Titus 2 relationship. Our new identity means we have a new battle. And as we are renewed to the true knowledge of Christ, our first instruction in that battle is to put to death what is earthly in us. Second in that battle, we are to actively be putting on godly attitudes and actions. And this is the rest of our passage. We're going to start with 12 through 14 says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. 
so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Before we jump into the instructions here and what we are to put on, I want you to notice how the believer is described. You are described as chosen by God, handpicked from the foundation of the world to be his. Called to be holy, you have been set apart for his purposes, for his glory, and you are loved. The infinite one, the merciful one, has chosen you to be rescued from your sin. He has made you holy. He has set you apart from the world that you might live for him and his glory, and you are beloved. You are loved by God. He has set his divine, unending love upon you. That is what we are to remember before we jump into these instructions. He is not asking you to fight this battle as an evil taskmaster, but one who loves you and knows what is best for you and who has fully equipped you to live as his child. So don't look at verses 5 through 11 and here, 12 through 17, as two different lists of do's and don'ts. See them as God's instruction of love and protection now to the you, now that you belong to him. We saw in verse 5 that we are to put to death what is earthly in us. And here we see another aspect of that battle. We are called to put on godliness. Put on. This means to adorn oneself, to clothe oneself in. It literally means to sink in and wrap yourself up. This action, just like the put to death above, is a definitive choice of who I am going to be. We are to put on attitudes of the heart, all of which intricately affect our dealings and interactions with other people. And as we see in this text, specifically with other believers. If you go back up to verse 11, it almost seems out of place at first. Paul has just told them to put off these lists of sins, to put off the old self and put on the new self, and he ends with this. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. As believers, we are all one in Christ, no matter one's background, one's heritage, one's standing, one's ethnicity, when we become Christians, we all have a new identity, and it's the same identity. We are in Christ. But, you're waiting for that, weren't you? That doesn't mean this makes relationships easy. The people groups mentioned here in verse 11 couldn't have been more different, and they had some severe hostility toward one another. So not only are we battling our own sin and our own fleshly desires in verses 5 through 11, we are also battling contaminated thinking, prejudices, experiences, and these things leak into our relationships with other people. Hence, part of our new battle is now responding in righteousness because we can. We can mortify our sinful attitudes because we are no longer a slave to them, and we can now turn to righteousness, especially in our interactions with other people. Do you know what this is called? This putting to death 
the works of the flesh and putting on these attitudes of righteousness? It's called repentance. Repentance as a believer does not just occur at salvation. We are to be actively repenting daily in our lives, not just confessing our sin, but repenting of it. We still sin, which is why we are to be continually to put these things to death. But that is not where we are to stop. Because of being made alive in Christ, we can now turn to God and live in a way that now reflects our new identity. That is repentance. It's a turning from sin to God and his righteousness. And that's what Paul goes on to express here in our verses when he says, put on these attitudes of godliness, which are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are to bear with one another, forgive each other, and put on love. I want to take a minute and go through these heart attitudes. We are to put on compassion. This word compassion is, means merciful from the heart. It's from the depths of who you are. It's not just a surface sympathy. When someone is hurting, going through a trial, do you put yourself in their shoes? Do you take the time to see their struggle, feel their struggle, ask them questions? Do you take the time to genuinely care for them? How about kindness? Kindness means goodness, and it's goodness expressing itself in deeds. This is not just an intellectual ascent, a thought of doing good, but one who follows through. Are you thoughtful? Are you known like Dorcas in Acts 9 as someone who is full of good works and charity? Do you follow through with practicing kindness when the Lord reveals these opportunities to you? Or do you miss out on doing good? How about humility? Humility is a deep sense of one's moral lowliness. It's a lowliness of mind. Philippians 2 is really our benchmark in this. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also look out for the interests of others. I just realized that was a combination of ESV and NAS. We do ESV at our church. That's how I have it memorized. So that one got a little wonky. <laughs> But then we see, as you go on in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we are giving a perfect example of what this humility is to look like, how it is to be practiced. And that example was Christ dying on the cross for us. How are you doing in considering others and sacrificing yourself for them? Is selfishness preventing you from demonstrating humility? What about jealously? Are you too busy comparing yourself to another instead of serving them? Gentleness and meekness. This is linked with humility, and it's first and foremost an attitude towards God. It's an attitude that is not resisting or disputing what God has for you. It's seeing him as gracious, and then it's a heart that demonstrates this graciousness toward other people. Patience. This is long-suffering, persevering, being steadfast. 
slow in avenging wrong. When others rub you the wrong way, are you patient with them? My husband calls us all porcupines. We all prick and poke someone. Some a little harder than others, but we all prick and poke each other. The question is, are you patient when others poke you? Knowing that your immaturities poke other people as well. Are you patient with them as they grow, just as you would hope they'd be patient with you as you grow? Bearing with one another. This means to endure, to bear with, to put up with difficult people or circumstances. This instruction and the one following to forgive each other are both reflexive in nature, meaning that action is to be taken up with one another. And these actions require the above attitudes of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and it's us living them out. Next, we see forgiving each other. To bestow favor unconditionally toward another, the act of pardoning another. And we are to do this to whoever has complaint against us. When people offend you, do you take it personally? Does it surprise you when other people sin? Why is this? Because it happens to all of us. <laughs> are you quick to receive the Lord's forgiveness and yet slow to offer forgiveness to other people? This passage calls us to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. One of the greatest ways to grow in a heart of forgiveness towards other people is to see your own sin and remember how much you have been forgiven. Lastly in our list, we see love, and this is agape love. This is doing what is best for the object of your love. This love is not based on the desirability of the object itself, but desires the highest good for that object. It's not devoid of emotion, but it is not dictated by emotion either. And here it says that love binds everything together in unity. Without love, none of these character qualities will be manifested toward one another. But if as a body we are doing what is best for the object of our love, what is best for these other believers, the only result will be unity. If love is our aim, we will be acting Christ-like and practicing all these godly attitudes. The greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think we need to get back to praying this way. That, would be, that we would be known for our love, his supernatural love in our life. Well, this passage ends with just a few more instructions. And although these remaining instructions deal with our relationship and interaction with others, I want you to notice the vertical focus that is highlighted in Christ and God in these verses. Verses 15 through 17. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let it, the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks through him to God the Father. As believers, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. This peace is redemptive in nature. It's a result of God redeeming us to himself through Christ. This is peace is from him, and it's given by him. We are no longer at enmity with God, but justified, we're reconciled, and we have a restored relationship to our creator. This peace, it's to rule our heart. That word literally means to umpire our heart. We are to both be both intentional and practice this peace. It says you were called to one body and we are to have this relational peace with others. That is how the body remains unified. In verse 15, we have another instruction. It says, we are to be thankful, continually thankful. This word be thankful here is a compulsion to be grateful to another for the favor bestowed. Here, amidst a list of God's instructions of how we are to interact with other people, Paul says, don't forget that what God has accomplished through Christ to be continually thankful for that. This will enable us to administer grace to others as we are reminded of the grace that has been given to us. A thankful heart helps sustain us to live godly lives with other people. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, we see that this is the word of Christ his message of truth, the gospel, and we are to let this truth dwell to make its home in our hearts and abundantly in the midst of people around us. This means that we are to once again be soaking in truth. Here though, the you, when it says richly dwell within you, is actually a plural. It means all of you or as like what we like to say in the South, y'all. He is speaking of the church body here as a whole to be saturated in truth. It must dwell in our midst as an assembly. This helps us maintain the peace by each of us bowing our personal preferences and ideas to truth for what is good for the sake of the body. This truth will help teach us and teach others to admonish them in all wisdom. And here we see that is done through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are even exhorting one another in our truth during our time of worship as we sing to the Lord. John Kitch Kitchen in his commentary expresses it this way, and I think it's really helpful. He says, it may seem awkward that one singing can at one time and the same be both to God and to one another. Yet this is the, an idea familiar in the Old Testament. This instructive for us for our gathered worship. Our singing is not simply to warm individual hearts, but it's to testify, to instruct, and to edify the larger body. This is another means of God's ordained instruction and edification for the whole. Isn't that a beautiful picture, ladies? Another encouragement of why we are not to forsake the gathering of the saints. Oh, how we need each other to help instruct us to keep our minds set on the things above. Lastly, verse 17. We are to do all things in word or deed in the name of Christ. We see again, Christ is our purpose, 
our perspective in all of life. In what we say or in what we do, in all things, we are to give thanks to God. How? Through Christ. Our identity in him makes all the difference. It is because of him that we can even give God thanks. And notice, too, how being thankful, it's mentioned three times in these last couple of verses. Our new identity in Christ, our being raised with him from death to life, it brings about a thankful heart, both personally and in our dealings with other believers. So I have to ask, do you have an attitude of gratitude? Do you give thanks in all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.18? One, one strong indication of whether or not you are remembering Christ will be by how thankful you are in your life. I mentioned last night that our deeds, or our lack thereof, are often indicators of our heart. Evaluating my heart of thankfulness, or my lack of thankfulness, is often one of the greatest litmus tests for me in understanding my heart. Unfortunately, I think far too often as believers, we forget that our true identity is in Christ. Like the ugly duckling, we often live defeated, miserable, and overwhelmed lives. We focus on the things of this earth, and we lose sight of how we are being prepared for a new home. We forget that we've been made alive in Christ. We are no longer defined and controlled by our sin, and we can now actively fight and clothe ourselves with these godly attitudes and responses. We forget that Christ bought my life at a cost. Ladies, when we consider our new identity, when we live with a new perspective, and when we understand our new battle, our lives will be filled with thankfulness, with joy, and with blessing. Like our swan, we, we will have a happiness that we never imagined. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that your word is so clear. Lord, that yes, there are instructions. There are things we are to do and not do. But Lord, who we are in you makes all the difference for why. Why do we labor? Why do we run to the cross? Why do we remember the gospel? Because we are forgetful people. And we try to find our identity in the things of this world. Instead of remembering that you and you alone are our identity. I pray that this morning, as we continue to go to breakout sessions and even hear another time in your truth, Lord, that our hearts would be compelled to want to live for you because of who you are for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>